discovery is said to be an accident meeting a prepared mind. But every story behind a discovery is different. Perhaps the idea is conceived in a light bulb moment or a brainstorming session or captured in scribblings on the back of a napkin. Here, we introduce you to scientific pioneers taking you beyond their publication and into Innovation Corner to hear the untold stories behind their discoveries. This podcast is brought to you by Biotechni, and I'm your host, Alex Maloney. Our guest today is Michelle Arkin, Professor of Pharmaceutical Chemistry at the University of California, San Francisco. Michelle is also the director of the Small Molecule Discovery Center at the university which at the time Michelle joined was one of the first examples of an academic facility that was professionalizing drug discovery. Michelle has an enormous amount of experience in this field and now continues to apply methods that she's helped to pioneer to demonstrate drug ability of new target classes. Further, Michelle has an entrepreneurial string to her bow and has co-founded multiple companies, one of which is Ambergon Therapeutic, and we spent some time talking about the exciting ideas and concepts that started this company. Michelle is also an incredibly personable and empowering leader who is inspiring the next generation of drug hunters. These are exciting times for drug discovery, and as you'll hear in this episode, the convergence and intersectionality of new approaches to drug development have opened up vast possibilities. While we're already witnessing the realization of some of these breakthroughs, we're merely scratching the surface of what lies ahead. Welcome to Back of the Napkin. Michelle, hi. Welcome to Back of the Napkin. It's great to have you here. Well, it's great to see you again. Thanks for inviting me. So we first crossed paths this year, actually, earlier at a conference in San Diego, where you were giving the, the plenary talk. And... I was looking back at my notes and right at the top of the page, I've got invite Michelle onto back of the napkin with four exclamation marks on it. It's great. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know you well enough to know if four is a lot. Is four a lot? It was a lot. Yeah. Was okay, four. good. Excellent. Yeah. Cause my daughter, like four is good morning. <laughs> Yeah, four was, that's a high bar for me, four. So. Okay, well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I really feel honored. So let's um, build some foundations here then, um, Michelle. Talk me through how you got into science and take me back as far as we need to go here. Well, my father's a doctor and I liked science in school. So I guess I thought I might go into medicine. So I was pre-med, which means I took the chemistry classes when I went to university at Bryn Mawr in the U.S. And in my first class, so my first chemistry class, big class, you know, like 120 people was a big class at that liberal arts college. And my professor called me down to the bottom, you know, the lectern at the bottom of the amphitheater after class. And she said, uh, oh, I just wanted to meet you because, you know, people who are doing well in class, you know, sometimes you don't meet them. And I just wanted to say hi. And then after the third test, she had another note at the top that said, please come see me. And I walked down there and she said, what happened? You bombed that test. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was really, you know, that made a big impression that this big classroom that somebody would notice you, would see you, would see how you're doing. And that was not my experience in public high school. 
So I really appreciated that. And it and it drew me more into science that the students, my teachers, even when I was a freshman, took some interest. My physics teacher did too. And uh, at the same time, I was taking art history and I really fell in love with art history and um, being able to look at pictures in a dark room and think about how art was made. And I had done a lot of theater in high school, so I had kind of already bent. And um, I started learning about art conservation science. So this is the science of how an artwork is made, how it changes through time, how if you want to restore it or improve it, how you might go about it that's in alignment with what the artist had intended. And this really stimulated me, and it it was a double major for a while in chemistry and art history and worked at the Smithsonian. And so that was a a thread that I found really exciting was linking this art and science. Then when I graduated, I uh, decided to go into chemistry rather than art conservation science. I think, honestly, I was just intimidated by how few positions there were in art conservation science. It was really a new thing. And I talked to a scientist and he discouraged me and now I, I don't, I, if I could go back and tell that person, you know, my 21 year old self, I'd say, no, why can't you be the 11th person who has this job? Why, why let this person intimidate you instead of see what you have to offer? And so I allowed myself to be intimidated, but it worked out. So I went to graduate school in chemistry at Caltech and, um, did some really interesting work and kind of set me on my path. You're doing your PhD at Caltech then, and what's what's that? And so you've majored in in chemistry, um, and what have you decided to kind of specialize on then in, for your PhD? Oh, I see first year graduate students all the time now at at the university where I work, and there's some of them get really worried about what labs to join, and I try to say it's okay, it won't be that. It's not that earth-shattering or life-shattering a decision, but actually I took it very hard and very seriously. And at Caltech in chemistry, at the time, we didn't have rotations. You started school and you chose a lab and you were in a lab within a couple of months. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was kind of scary. And so I thought a lot, a lot, a lot about it and ended up working for Jackie Barton in... Um, on this project that was new to her lab. And it was, again, it was this combination of a lot of different ideas. And it was really um, kind of a wild idea. And that was appealing to me. It was scary, but I thought that I could, I had some of the skill sets and that were necessary in spectroscopy and inorganic chemistry to help make her project work. And so I started on this project called uh, DNA Mediated Electron Transfer, which sounds very arcane. The idea of it is this kind of revolutionary idea that the way DNA is held together, we think of it as being hydrogen bonds that hold the base pairs together. But actually what holds the helix together energetically is the electronic interaction between bases. So this polarizability between the bases that kind of make them like, um, say, a soft glue, and then they kind of are tacky and they, they bind to each other. And that electronic interaction also allows them to move electrons back and forth. Well, this was the idea. And she had some very preliminary data. And um, she's this very creative, very big thinker. And she extrapolated this idea. And then we developed better tools, better and better tools over the period of my PhD to actually evaluate this phenomenon 
study whether it was true or what its properties were. And now it's um, her lab's been working on it ever since. So it was really, um, yeah, it was a risk that was well taken, I think. Yeah, it sounds like an exciting project and you know, something that was great to be there at the beginning of, of this. Um, and then you move on to do a, a postdoc after your PhD, right? And this was at uh, Genentech. So that that's quite a, a gem, right? Going from from industry, sorry, from academia, and then going through a postdoc in industry. So what kind of catalyzed this this transfer? Yeah, this was a, I'd say sixty percent personal and forty percent scientific. So yeah. I, um, yes, it was an exciting project at the time, the DNA project, but it was also really controversial. And the controversy surrounding it had a personal quality to it, a personal attack quality that just was not worth it to me personally to continue to be part of. And so I really wanted to just change disciplines altogether. So I figured I would be a biochemistry professor and Mm -hmm. I had experience in inorganic chemistry and nucleic acids chemistry and nothing in protein chemistry and a lot of the game is in proteins. So I asked my friends at Caltech who worked in protein science, what's the coolest thing happening and uh, who's the best person doing it? Who's a person that I would really want to work with, want to have as a mentor? And uh, they all to a person said, Jim Wells. So, okay. I don't know. You're looking at me like that. Maybe that's a little lazy. Like I could have read the literature instead of asking my friends, but (laughs) (laughs) it only occurs to me now. (laughs) But they were actually, they, that crowdsourcing was really, was good. And it's true. It was really exciting work. And at the time, um, Genentech was doing things that labs couldn't do, academic labs couldn't do. If you think about the kind of big science that we can do in academics now, at the time, any kind of automation, even DNA sequencing, um, expressing lots of different proteins, and what Jim was working on called phage display, site-directed mutagenesis, mm. was still a, a, a technique that you learned. It wasn't something that just happened. And developing that into these really high display technologies like phage display was a really exciting new approach to tackle protein science. And that appealed to me, the idea of doing something completely different in a really different environment. And Genentech was very sciencey. Even though it was a large company, it was still um, innovation-driven and had that fun, startupy kind of mentality, at least in protein engineering, just the department that Jim was in. So I was fortunate to get that postdoc and worked with just really amazing people and changed the direction of my career entirely. Yeah, I did my PhD in protein engineering. So uh, whenever I hear about kind of, um, yeah, protein engineering, phage um, display and all these different direct evolution approaches. Yeah, I yeah. love that. So yeah, yeah very, it's very- amazing. Yeah, and still today, the techniques have been around for a long time, but there's so much innovation that can still be done. These <laughs> technologies, it's not, they're not one and done. They're continually evolving. And Absolutely. It's good. It's the, I was only there for a year and a third, a little over a year, but I learned a lot, made so many connections, really was my first introduction to biotech. And 
I don't know, did, when you started at the company, what your first, like, oh, I'm not in academics anymore. My first aha uh, moment was that I didn't need to put a code into the Xerox machine, the copy machine. We all have the same speed type, you know, like we all have the same funding source. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like you made a, a great connection with, with Jim Wells then at, at Genentech um, on this on this project. So um, tell me about what happened next, because this seems to be like a pretty um, key transition as well, moving away from, from Genentech. It does. It's another fork in the road, mm-hmm. I suppose. And the opportunity there was after 18 years, Jim was leaving Genentech to start his own company. And this is in the first dot-com boom. So we are in Silicon Valley, in the dot-com boom. Everybody's starting companies. There's tremendous energy around that. And he had an idea with a colleague from from Berkeley and to do uh, to tackle these undruggable targets. What we today even still call undruggable targets or hard to drug targets or high hanging fruit <laughs> to drug protein protein interactions. This is what he had been working on at Genentech and felt he had a good understanding of how proteins interacted with each other and how you could turn that knowledge into making small molecules oral drug size molecules that could do the same thing, that could block these protein-protein interactions. And a big paper came out from Steve Fessick and Phil Haydock's labs at Abbott, now AbbVie, on what was called fragment-based drug discovery. SAR by NMR. SAR by NMR, exactly, (laughs) this landmark paper. And... um, John and Jim had other ideas about how to do fragment-based drug discovery, but to apply it to protein-protein interactions. And this crazy idea, new target class, new technology, startup funds were available for that kind of idea in the late 90s. And so he was leaving to do that. And the opportunity, there were four postdocs in his lab. He always had four postdocs. And Two of us decided to stay at Genentech and now have fantastic academic careers. Um, uh, Deb Sadu and uh, Greg Weiss. And two of us, Dan Erlinson and I, decided to go to the company to help him start it. And I don't know what Dan's rationale was. My rationale was, when am I going to have this opportunity again? And um, so jumped into the great unknown. And it was really fun. The how important everything was. Everything that happens is a chunk, a big fraction of what's happening at the company. And I found that very motivating, stimulating, um, very intellectual energy and problem solving and taking responsibility for what was happening. That that energy I really enjoyed and got a lot out of. And what was your role then at, from kind of day one? What were you coming in to do? So startup companies don't always hire the person who's best for the, what needs to be done. Sometimes it's who's least inappropriate for what needs to be done. <laughs> <laughs> so I had done laser spectroscopy in graduate school. So I did NMR spectroscopy at Sinesis. 
because, you know, spectroscopy, even though it's all very different. But it, um, I was one of the biochemists. So in the hit finding, how would we find molecules? How would we validate that they're real? How would we advance them? Working with the chemists and then eventually with cell biologists to push molecules forward. So I was at the early stage of the drug discovery pipeline. I mean, we all were. <laughs> that was all that was known was this idea, how to find the molecules. And in really thinking through what's the best way to find fragments and link or optimize fragments to bind to these challenging surfaces at the um, interface of protein-protein interactions, you know, the idea why people think these are undruggable, and I talked about it in that plenary talk you mentioned, these two um, opposite ideas make protein-protein interactions challenging. One is they can be intrinsically disordered proteins until they bind, so there's no binding site because the protein's disordered. Or that's the spaghetti, they're big, right? That's the spaghetti, <laughs> or so they're protein. big flat surfaces. That's the cliff face with the rock climber hanging onto the cliff face. And I don't think either of these is exactly true. Let's call them edge cases to the spectrum of, of what's really happening there. But that's where we were. We thought these are probably big flat surfaces. If we find little fragments to bind into these little subsites at this surface and we link them together, we can make a molecule that would be too complicated to design from scratch but could bind to the functionally important parts of these large protein-protein interfaces. And there's a lot of biochemistry and biochemical hypotheses behind that, which we can go into if you want to talk about it. But, in the, but operationally, the challenge is because these molecules are small and we're using high concentrations of the molecules because they're because they're small, they don't have a high binding energy. So we use a high concentration to populate the bound state. And these proteins are challenging proteins. There are a lot of artifacts that come up. And we quickly realized that and turned to developing a number of approaches to validate that the compounds are binding to the sites that we think they are, that they're interacting with the proteins in the way for the reasons we think they are. And so we developed a number of biophysical tools that are also pretty commonly used now, very commonly used now in drug discovery, but they weren't that commonly used back then, like surface plasma and resonance, <laughs> uh, NMR, crystallography was commonly used, but different methods to demonstrate mechanism of action, mechanism of binding. So that was a big learning that has impacted a lot of how we think about drug discovery and I think how we can be effective in doing chemical biology. And you found some fantastic molecules that made it all the way through to, to being approved, right? So tell me, tell me about these. Oh, you know, new drug discovery is never a linear story. So there are two stories that I'll tell you about. One did not make it to a drug. We stopped working on it um, pretty early in the development phase. Mm -hmm. But that was a scientifically important um, discovery, where we were looking at the protein interleukin-2. Okay, here's the other thing. Because we were early in the game with protein-protein interactions, the idea was 
let's reduce risk about the target itself by taking targets that had antibodies that were on the market. So we know that they're therapeutically important. If we mm -hmm. can do better than the antibody in some way, then we've de-risked the biology. But looking back, knowing more now about these kinds of systems, we also picked some of the most difficult targets because those extracellular proteins, as opposed to intracellular proteins, extracellular protein-protein interactions often are more of those big cliffs coming together, those rigid, large, rigid surfaces coming yeah. together. The proteins are disulfide bonded to themselves, so they're more structurally rigid. The protein-protein interactions can be higher affinity. This is a different, it's a challenging game. So interleukin-2 was in that class. There was an antibody on the market for inflammation, uh, for immunity. So we there was also a compound that had just come out in Jack's communication from uh, Tilly and others' labs at Roche. Is it? And <clears throat> this molecule, they designed it mimicking IL-2, and they wanted it to bind to the receptor. But in fact, it bound to IL-2 itself. So yeah. it was like a fantastic failure. It was like a super success <laughs> failure. <laughs> and... This molecule, um, they had done some NMR with it. We then crystallized it. And in that gave us a bunch of ideas for how to make better molecules, how to make our own molecules that mimic some of these interactions, but others would be new and better, more drug-like. And so for these molecules, we took up this fragment-like approach. And we ended up with a molecule that had essentially three fragments linked together, or three pharmacophores linked together. So it's a big linear molecule that covered the surface of the protein-protein interaction interface. The problem with that molecule is that the antibody really wasn't making any money. So it was de-risked, but also, to be honest with you, I wasn't, we weren't very strong in biology there. We had a few really good biologists, but we didn't say, okay, we have this cool molecule. How can we use it? We said, well, this is not that important of a target. We'll publish it as a demonstration. And I think it has been a valuable demonstration project for people thinking about protein protein interactions, but it wasn't, we, we weren't going to pursue it for drug discovery. <laughs> and then I hopped on a project and ran the cell biology parts of the project for LSA1 ICAM. This is another immunology project. And in this long circuitous story, we started off doing allosteric inhibitors and fragment-based drug discovery. And there was another project team working in parallel, starting from essentially a literature bust. So Genentech had published a peptidomimetic inhibitor of LSA1 in Science Magazine. And the person who published that had since become our VP of Chemistry at Synesis, Bob McDowell. And he suggested, well, let's work on this also. Let's try to make this more drug-like and orally bioavailable. So we stopped working on the Fragment project, and I started working with that group on this peptidomimetic project and developing the cell-based assays to evaluate those compounds. And those were the primary screens were cell-based assays. So 
we developed these molecules in the end, made some really nice molecules, but they weren't orally bioavailable because they had an acid on them that made it difficult and aliphatic acid made it difficult to get them cell permeable and we stopped working on it. So then sat on the shelf and some colleagues of Bob's from Genentech had then left Genentech, started a company called Sarcode and they had an idea for how they would use this non-cell permeable LFA1 inhibitor. They would use it in the eye for inflammatory <laughs> conditions in the eye because that there you don't want systemic exposure. You want it to just stay in the eye. So the properties that made this molecule terrible for what we wanted made it good for what they wanted. So we licensed the molecule to them. They developed it into a drug, which lefitograst for inflammatory dry eye, which is actually a really big market. And the only drug that was on the market for it was a cyclosporin. Um, I draw cyclosporin. Uh, around that time, Sarcode got bought by a company that then got bought by Shire, and now the drug is marketed by Novartis. That's exciting. So, so you are there. You've kind of got you've got the origin story. Then uh, you're sort of, <laughs> and it's nice to kind of see how these things can be be repurposed and uh, and and reworked. Um, I think the other thing about it, Alex, is just to, that it takes a champion to really make a drug, to turn a molecule into a drug. It takes people. Now, these people had been at multiple companies and coming back to the same idea. It's like this, this idea was nagging at them and they couldn't rest until they had cracked this problem. Yeah, That's what it takes to make a drug. You can have Gantt charts and timelines and all of these things are important to operationalize it, but it's still this flashes of insight and and caring, humans caring about the outcome that make things successful, in my experience. And then this transition happens, Michelle, where you go back into academia. So you seem <laughs> to have created this really solid um, foundation for working in industry. It sounds really exciting. You've got these kind of um the sort of the translation side of, of finding a drug sorted so talk me through going back to <laughs> uh back into academia because you normally see it the other way right but this is this is kind of rare a little bit i don't want to go on record as having translational science sorted <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> just want to put that out there but ha have some experience knowing what the how hard it is and what the problems are and to be inspired by the problems Yes. So I was at this so-called so startup company for about nine years and it was no longer a startup company. I started, as we talked about, in early discovery and then cell biology and then clinical development. And I was working on early stage clinical programs in oncology and directing the what? cell biology department, which was mostly focused on these the early, late preclinical, early clinical assets. And that was very useful. Uh, now that time is extremely useful for me to have some idea about what it takes to develop a clinical protocol and a biomarker strategy. And, and that was very helpful. But day to day, not really my cup of tea. I think about it this way, especially at a small company, you're doing one or two clinical trials at a time. It's doing one experiment every two years. Mm. 
And if you're in early screening or biophysics, you're used to do our chemistry. You're used to doing dozens of experiments at a time and uh, over the course of a year. And uh, I don't know, my ideas are just not that good. I need to do a whole bunch more experiments to get stuff to work. So it's, um, I, I felt a little cul-de-sac. To, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, a great fit for me. So I spent uh, a long, cold evening looking through biospace through the indeed of the day to mm-hmm. see what jobs were open and just what would inspire me, what what would make me excited as a new job. And I found an exact replica of the job I had at another company. I thought, oh, maybe I could get that job. And I realized, huh, I don't want that job at all. And I hadn't realized until then that it wasn't the place or the this. It was just that I wasn't inspired by what I was doing. I didn't feel that it was a great match. I was great at it. So then I found this job at UCSF. Ironically enough, Jim Wells had then since then left Sinesis and gone to UCSF, and he was about to become the department chair of pharmaceutical chemistry. And he had inherited this nascent drug discovery group that he decided to build up and called the Small Molecule Discovery Center. And he had hired a chemist, Adam Renslow, industry-trained medicinal chemist, knowing that high-throughput screening centers or drug discovery centers were getting to be a thing that some academic labs did, some universities did, but they mostly didn't have chemistry. And when you're in industry, you know high-throughput screening is the very beginning of this process, and it's a very chemistry-intensive process. So he hired a chemist right away, and Adam's you know, fantastic industrial chemist. And so they needed now a biologist or somebody to run the high-throughput screening or the biology side and really bring in projects, translate those projects into assays, translate those projects to chemists, translate the chemistry to biologists. So it was kind of a, it was a good spot for me, communicating to people across disciplines and trying to turn what they wanted to do into something that was possible. And it, so I applied for it and it sounded like fun, really. The two of them just made it seem like a really exciting opportunity. And looking back, it was the beginnings-ish of what's now a really big industry in academics, doing academic drug discovery, chemical biology, wasn't so called, wasn't named really. And it became a very important aspect of what academic science is doing, especially in biomedical research. So again, I was fortunate to be in the early days, I guess, of something that was going to be really interesting and and valuable. So that's why I went, not really to be an academic so much. Mm-hmm. I was actually very surprised at how academic the projects were, but to professionalize what could be done in academia in drug discovery. And Jim um, said, here's some bench space. If anybody's interested in what you have to do and anybody wants to come work for you, you're welcome to hire people, you're welcome to write grants. And so Adam and I did develop a number of big collaborations with people and started having postdocs and graduate students and then became professors. And now I'm the department chair. So it's a nice story, I think, 
mean, it was it was a lot of effort and time. It's been 15 years, but uh, that in a good academic situation, it can be uh, meritocracy has a bad word, but it can be based on what you can accomplish. I had the space to accomplish what I wanted to and to grow a career the way I wanted to, grow the research the way I wanted to. And the Small Molecule Discovery Center has done really well. Also has a number of licenses and projects, new companies, trained a lot of people, <laughs> done hundreds of screens and projects with people. So it's been really a fun ride. It looks like a fantastic center. And you now looking on the, the webpage for the, um, the Small Molecule Discovery Center, it seems like collaboration is an enormously important part of this. So I wanted to ask you, like, how important do you think collaboration is in advancing science? And I guess coming from maybe pharma where kind of everything is more internal, this idea of having a center that kind of encourages collaboration across different industries, like how, how does this work and how have you seen this kind of impact and advance science? You ask that in a really interesting way because most people, I think, would say, well, pharma, everybody works together. You know it's a team science. You know that okay. drug discovery is a team sport. And, But at the same time, you're right that there can be an internal um, a limitation to thinking because this is how we do it. This is what we do. This is who we are. And not as much external thinking or external collaboration as may be helpful in some areas. And to answer your original question, I think collaboration is everything. I don't think I've ever had an idea or a goal that I could do completely by myself. And collaboration starts with the people who work with you in your lab, the people who work next to you, the faculty that do, or that in a company that colleagues that do different things that are overlapping that are required to make this this idea flourish to address the questions that you have and there's been something of a revolution in academics maybe over the last 15 years i've seen it a lot this move towards an appreciation that team science is a valuable thing is can give you unique results it's not something you have to do or something that the funder requires you to do. It's actually grassroots what you want to do to make progress. And it's it's fun. And science, like it or not, you know, science is done by people. I think a lot of us became scientists because politics felt like there was no ground truth or uh, literature or art seemed like um, everything was fine. You know, there's an objective... I feel as a scientist, I think a lot of people do that there's an objective reality that we're trying to get to and build on and grow. And But even though there is that objectivity, everything you're going to do or discover or think about is done with people, was done by people. So it, it's always been highly collaborative. You're collaborating with the literature, it's always been that way. So pulling that forward and having that be not a bug, but a feature of science is a great direction. I'm really happy to see it go this way. 
Yeah, I think that's a good answer, Michelle. I'm a huge proponent for collaboration. You know, so many people bring so many different things um, to a project. And and one of the previous guests, Amy Rook, she talked about yeah. kind of ideas needing to be rolled around and pressure tested between lots of people. And, you know, I think there's something really important about that. And I don't think it gets, well, more so now, but yeah, I think we should pro- really promote collaboration more. Yes. Yeah, I agree. So you're, so you have an academic group now then as well, which, and they're based in the, in the center as well. Is that right? Well, I'm a professor of pharmaceutical chemistry at University of California, San Francisco, and the small molecule discovery center is chemical biology and drug discovery center. So they are different people with different skill sets with different goals, but there is a lot of overlap to what we were just saying. I'm uh, Maybe you could say I have weak boundaries about things like this. The academic lab or the trainees, postdocs, graduate students, I think they gain tremendously from sitting next to these professional scientists. We have professional software and informatics and high throughput screening equipment and libraries, so much knowledge and tools that they can use in their own science. And vice versa, the people that are running the Small Molecule Discovery Center could have jobs in industry tomorrow, and some of them do take jobs in industry, Um, but they like being in an environment where they see lots of new things, lots of new biology. They can see immediately how their skills can be utilized in novel ways to push forward programs. So they are two separate groups, but there is a lot of intellectual, cultural overlap that I think benefits both. Yeah. I could see on the the kind of um, the four main aims of this this center that the bottom one was to uh, educate the next generation of drug hunters. And I really like that. I really like that phrase. Um, but talking about values, um, I you've come up with one of the best acronyms I've seen for for anything ever and i guess you you know the one i'm going to ask you here right go ahead gonna ask me and then i'll explain so kitten heels (laughs) okay if you point to google uh... (laughs) good yeah tell me about this michelle so i had a graduate student uh who just graduated and she is a very creative but also a little bit literal in interpreting her boss's words so a colleague of mine, James Frazier, has his website. They talk about their statement of values. And it's, I think it's like happy hour or beer and chips or something like that. So it's one of those poems where the word is written down and then the first word of each sentence uses that letter. So I don't remember what they are, but so you read it down and it says beer and chips and then you read it across and it's their statements of values. And I said, well, that works great for him, but I'm so uncool that for me, it would be kitten heels, which are beautiful but prissy shoes that have short, sharp heels. It's kind of a ladies who lunch shoe. And um, so she made a poem or statement of values based on kitten heels, which is I then loved. I actually thought what she wrote was so nice and we pressure tested it with the lab and and people liked it. So yeah, we kept it, but that's, it's, um, 
comes from me being uncool. Oh, I really like that. I think that's really good. And it's <laughs> good you. to have, yeah, it's kind of good to have these pillars and these values that you kind of hold yourselves accountable to. Um, I really like that. Um, thank you. Yeah, I thought it was beautiful. So let's get on to talking about some of your kind of more current research, Michelle, because you know, I've seen, we met at the Gordon Research Conference a few weeks ago as well. And, you know, I got to hear you talk about some of the more recent work you're doing. So, um, and, you know, a huge thrust of your work is obviously around these protein-protein interactions and finding small molecule modulators of these. So maybe you could kind of tell the listeners, you know, a little bit about what, what this work involves. Yeah, so the projects that you're talking about, it's one of the main projects in the lab. <laughs> and I, it's, a, I think, a nice example of how, again, it comes down to people, starting with people, and then turning into a whole cottage industry. In 2012, I yeah. was at a conference in Germany, chemi medicinal chemistry, European medicinal chemistry conference, and met Christian Altman, who was giving an award lecture on his work on 1433 structural biology and how natural products stabilize these interactions between 1433 and other proteins. And I just thought this was the most amazing talk. It He was a young scientist just starting his lab and this guy's whole career, I could see his whole career. There was so much to mine from that biology and the but the chemical biology and the novelty of trying to glue protein-protein interactions together. And after his talk or after my talk, you know, kind of run in the same circles, he said, you know, I've been wanting to talk to you and looking for technologies. And I think your technology that you developed that we brought from Sinesis called disulfide tethering would be a really good technology. Have you ever thought about stabilizing protein-protein interactions instead of inhibiting them? And I said, uh, you know, I have now. <laughs> I totally want to do that. And it took us a few years to find a graduate student from his lab. Um, I don't know, pioneering and not crazy enough to come over to my lab for six or seven months and start this project. And it was her master's project. And then Elena Sebesma, and she became a graduate to post a PhD student in Christian and Luke Brunsveld's lab at the university, Eindhoven University of Technology. And, uh, the project was really interesting, worked well, and I've been amazed over the last seven years how well this technology works at finding stabilizers of these protein-protein interactions, and it, um, it spawned a lot of chemical biology, trying to design systematic approaches for stabilizing protein-protein interactions within this class, outside this class. Can you stabilize interactions that have been weakened by mutation? So there are a number of diseases that are caused by loss of 14.33 binding. And I'll explain what 14.33 is in a second. So we want to know if we can re-stabilize a lost protein-protein interaction. And as you will know, molecular glues are a really hot area of drug discovery. Most companies, at least, are working on molecular glue degraders, where you have one pro compound that doesn't bind well to either protein, maybe, but together glues these proteins together, glues non-native interactions, so proteins, uh, ubiquitin ligase, 
and a protein of interest that would not normally interact. You add this molecular glue, it pulls them together and allows the ubiquitin ligase to ubiquitinate the protein of interest and then it gets degraded. These are the, the neomorphic, um, neomorphic interactions, right? Yes, exactly. Neomorphic interactions or synthetic interactions. And lenalidomide and the work that Celgene did is really uh, groundbreaking for this concept. We are working on stabilizing native protein-protein interactions. So these are proteins that do interact with each other already. If we can turn up the gain on an interaction, we can make more of that native biology happen. And that's what we're trying to do. For technology development, that has the advantage that we know which two proteins to look at in the first place, where with a neomorphic interaction, you don't know a priori if there is any possibility of bringing these two proteins together. So because of that, we can do this systematically, we can learn some rules, and then we can slowly make the interaction weaker and weaker until it has no functional interaction. Can we bring that back to being a functional protein-protein interaction? And if so, can we learn some rules that the neomorphic world might be able to utilize to help predict how to stabilize new interactions? So 1433 is also a fascinating protein. It's a chaperone, a phosphoprotein binding chaperone. And it's the, one of the main reasons proteins are phosphorylated. They become phosphorylated to make them clients for 1433, and that affects their function. So there is a vast untapped biology of 1433 phosphoprotein stabilization. Often that you read it in the literature, now I always think about it, an inhibitory phosphorylation at site such and such, or stabilizing, activating phosphorylation at site such and such, sometimes it's changing protein conformation or binding other effector proteins, but often when it's serine and threonine, it's the 1433 binding that's making it inhibitory or making it activating. So that's an ex exciting area biologically as well as technologically. How many proteins are known to bind to 1433 then? Is that, have they all been found? Hundreds have been, thousand, something like that. It depends on what you consider found. If you see it in proteomics and you don't throw it out, it's probably an artifact because 1433 shows up all the time in my phosphoproteomics, so I throw it out. If you look at those lists, then there are thousands maybe one to 3,000 proteins. If you look at really validated things or ideas where people have been looking at a protein and then find that 1433 binds to it, that's more in the hundreds. So so this idea then of stabilizing protein-protein interactions with 1433 and, uh, and another protein is, I guess, what started um, this company now that you founded called called Ambigon. And thinking about this list then, so of what that list of proteins could be, you've got so many targets here that you could could go after. And it sounds like, you know, it makes such perfect sense to kind of start a, a company here. So tell me about the moment where you kind of realized we need to we need to make a company here. This comes back to what you were asking about with collaboration before and mm -hmm. how important people are to the equation. I, working with Christian and Luke in their labs has been such a fantastic experience for me and for my lab. They're, they're wonderful people and I really enjoy talking science with them. And 
So in developing some of these projects together, it became clear that it's been Christian's dream to start a company. And he started a company called Ambagon when maybe he was even a graduate student. There's a video that I've seen that was a German, he's German, that was a, a, a German news piece about Ambagon and uh, his entrepreneurship. And the idea was that these natural products, they're fungal natural products that are act as herbicides. And then the fungus eats the dead plant. And he, his company, Ambagon, was going to turn these natural products into herbicides, into mm -hmm. weed killers. And this company name had been around, and the company didn't... Um, uh, <laughs> Roundup came out, and it's so much cheaper. There's no way that a natural product is going to be able to compete. And so that idea for the company didn't go forward, but this idea was always in his mind that he wanted to have this company, Ambagon, and he wanted to turn it towards biomedical application. Um, this is where my being in the Bay Area and having some contacts in industry was helpful because he came into the sabbatical at UCSF one summer and we started pitching the company and it was really um, amazing to me to help him build his dream company you know, to make this dream come true and he works there now he's more or less left the university and he's there full-time as the chief technology officer and it's great Luke and I work a lot with the company advise and keep tabs on what they're doing, talk to the scientists frequently. And it's super exciting to see this realized. But to your scientific question, target selection is really challenging because there are so many targets. So first you, you start, okay, I'm going to start a company. I'm going to start a company. Uh, it's the first company that any of us has started. And uh, two of the people are in Europe. And we're going to have a company that's partially in Europe and partially in the United States because that's what makes sense. And you can imagine even three, four years ago, telling people that you're going to glue two proteins together was less readily captured, less readily understood. So you have new technology. Uh-oh, it sounds like Sinesis. New technology, new targets, new founders, <laughs> new business model. It took some effort to get a group to understand. And we ended up with an amazing group of investors, several investors putting small amounts of money for them in to, to seed this company. Mm -hmm. So I've got this totally wild group of people and this wild idea that we're trying to get funded. So we have to pick a therapeutic area. Mm -hmm. We have to pick some concrete targets. Neuroscience. You're going to toss neurodegeneration onto that pile of New and new technology, new target, new investors, new business model, and an area that's just been a graveyard for drug development. No, so in thinking through what targets we could approach that we knew something about a therapeutic area, we thought we could build a company around that people could invest in. Oncology was a really natural fit for all the reasons that people like to develop drugs in oncology: patient selection rapid proof of concept in the clinic, um, biomarkers pretty well developed, things like that. Also, the 14.3.3 binding ohm, interactome, is a rogues gallery of 
cancer proteins, um, tumor suppressors, transcription factors, oncogenic kinases, a number of proteins that are, have been difficult to drug, like transcription factors, intrinsically disordered proteins. So there was a lot there that uh, things that you might want to activate or inhibit. So a lot there that we could pull together into an exciting set of potential targets. But you are always leaving things on the table, like the neurodegenerative targets that you mentioned, inflammatory metabolism. The goal now for Ambigon is to work with partners that have expertise in those areas for development, and they can help select those targets as part of a, a business collaboration business deal. So I think that's the best way to expand the technology in 1433 without diluting the expertise that the company can have and push it forward its own targets. And yeah, 1433's tip of the iceberg. When lenalidomide came out, you think, well, maybe this is the unicorn. But then when the second molecular glue degrader came out, you think if there are two, there are thousands. And you just need to figure out how to find them, how to develop them, what you really want from these things. And hence the explosion of creativity in academics and biotech and big pharma around molecular glues and other induced proximity. So I do think it's a frontier and just broadly scoped, just induced proximity, broadly scoped, and many people are working on it. Our own corner of the world is in systematic approaches to discovering these interactions, starting with native interactions, because we can think about those systematically. What did we learn about 1433 and how to develop stabilizers that we can then apply to other targets? What are the features, the um, generalizable features of these interactions that we can apply? The way we approach it, we use covalent-based fragment discovery because you're asking a lot of a molecule to stabilize an interaction. The way our molecules work, like the natural products, they bind to a composite site. They bind very weakly to 1433 or to the intrinsically disordered protein on the other side of that interface. They bind to this sort of spherical pocket that's at the rim of that interface. So we started to look for other proteins that have some of those features. They have a chemical handle near that protein surface that we might use to drag a molecule to that site in a site-directed way. Using that approach, we can also screen for molecules that stabilize in the primary screen rather than look for binders and then see which ones stabilize. We can do that also. But having um, a systematic approach for finding stabilizers from fragments, we started looking for those kinds of pockets. Is there a handle, a cysteine, a buried lysine? Um, is there a the pocket of about the right size? How can we develop assays? And so from that, we found a couple of other hub protein targets. These different classes of proteins that like 1433 have a number of different proteins, uh, intrinsically disordered peptides that they interact with. And so we're pursuing those. Watch this space. Very exciting. Thank you. What excites you most about the future of drug discovery, Michelle? Intersectionality. So when you look at the drugs that are being developed now, they really follow a chemical biology mindset. What is the biological problem? What is the best way to address that biological problem with a tool 
if that tool validates the biology, turn it into a drug. So much broader concept of what a drug might look like. Maybe it's a small molecule that meets Lipinski's rules, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's a larger molecule. Maybe it's covalent. Maybe it's linked to an antibody. Maybe the antibody is the drug. Maybe it's a cell or a nucleic acid. And you see the intersectionality of these different types of biological tools being brought to bear on the medical problem. And that's really exciting. Along with all the data that we're getting, we can't have a conversation about modern drug discovery without talking about big data and how we're going to integrate all that to make the next round of molecules. So I think the breadth of innovation is at the highest, the broadest in my career so far in what people think is possible and are willing to try to do. And that's that's all we can ask for, right? Trying to tack the problems as we find them. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a really exciting time to be to be in the field. And I think the next, you know, five, ten years, I think we're going to see a lot of really interesting discoveries. Yeah, agreed. So, Michelle, we're kind of um, running out of time here, but I like to keep uh, a section on here for challenges. Um, you know, no scientific journey is, is free of challenges. So I'd like to kind of ask you about what sort of challenges you've encountered in your, in your time in science. Well, there's the personal challenges of deciding what you want to do and how to do it and figuring out how to convince people to let you do it with money or space or title or whatever you require to do that. And I think everybody goes through that and I have empathy for them and then I have experienced those things, but I'm in a pretty good spot right now. I'm very grateful. On the scientific side, this is true for all industries, I think, but in academics, it's really hard to line up the project team, the idea, the money, and the space technology all in the same place at the same time. And maybe the magic of this cottage industry we're building around stabilizing protein-protein interactions is, is having all those things at the right time, having the right project team and technology and enthusiasm externally that allows us the money and and pulpit to do and talk about that work. I wish I knew how to solve that problem. If I could just fund everybody and just say, do you follow your ideas rather than fund people based on their projects, fund them based on the people and let them do the projects, I would. But it's just, this is an ongoing challenge in academics, how to bring it all together. And, and that's where collaboration is so important because other people have the skill sets or the materials or the tools that you don't have. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting answer. And yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that's something that um, is obviously a problem and I don't know, it doesn't seem like there's an easy solution to it, right? Mm, no, yeah. most easy things. Well, things are always easy once somebody solved them. Okay, so final feature then, Michelle. I think you maybe know what's coming here. <laughs> yeah. And this is uh, something fun to finish. So um, I think you've maybe heard heard this feature on the podcast before, but um, I noticed when you gave your um, plenary talk at Drug Discovery Chemistry in San Diego that you described, um, you described kind of 
biology is a is like a complex dance and you you had this slide which said less of a waltz and more of a a traditional british british dance and you had this movie that you played from from pride and prejudice <laughs> <laughs> so i thought for this um something fun to finish feature i was going to find science paper titles that had either appeared in peer-reviewed literature or i've just completely made up um and they're based, you know, loosely based on film titles. So I want you to guess which, whether you think it was in a real peer-reviewed journal or whether I've completely made uh, the paper title up. Does that sound good? Oh, yeah. That sounds great. Okay. <laughs> All right. Number one. The silencing of the lambs. Use of antisense oligonucleotides in sheep embryos. Real. No. Fake. <laughs> It sounds Alex, like it's it says music. more about you than me. Yeah, totally. You're really <laughs> I, good at this. I have to admit, um, Chat GPT is very good actually at coming up with um, <laughs> with fake paper titles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think you'll like this one as it involves a fourteen three three client protein. P fifty three shades of hippo. Real. Yeah, that is a that is a real one. That was yeah, because it's not as good as the made up one. I know they never are. They never are, and that's kind yeah. of makes this game yeah. a little, yeah, a little flawed. But hey, okay, <laughs> okay, all right. Um, the next one: lost in cool. translation, ribosome-associated mRNA and protein quality controls. Well, that's real, or should be real. Yeah, that, for real. That was yeah. real. Yeah, again, published in 2018. Uh, although Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson weren't weren't authors on that on that paper. <laughs> <laughs> next one Cas9 Ablanca the Hollywood protein you yeah yeah that's another that's yeah. another me <laughs> <laughs> okay and last last one PPI fiction molecular glues targeting undruggable proteins oh uh, that's got to be you yeah, that is that is me, but <laughs> I think you probably know it's like if that was fighting a, words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'd know if that was a real one. <laughs> Pretty good. Four out of five, Michelle. That's uh, uh, yeah, a good score. Okay. It's <laughs> be very <yeah>. clever. <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. <laughs> um, okay, so something else we do on the podcast, Michelle, is we send out uh, a napkin. This podcast is called Back of the Napkin, so it's nice to have some memorabilia from each of the episodes. So you'll receive this shortly in the post. And if you could leave some scribblings that are personal to your journey in science, then when we post this episode, we can post uh, your napkin with, with that as well. So I look forward to seeing what you what you come up with. Well, thank you. I look forward to thinking about it. <laughs> How can people hear more about the, um, the SMDC uh, and kind of uh, contact you Michelle if they kind of want to reach out for for these fantastic collaborations that we've spoken about oh thank you and um, go to the website and I'm easy to find on google my email is michelle.arkin at ucsf.edu and we do collaborate broadly with people in technology or um, new target development we'll, we'll drop a link to the uh, the SMDC page on um, on the show notes for the episode as well so people can find it easy well, thank you. Thanks so much. I have all kinds of things I want to pitch on the, the little show notes. But we'll yeah, see. well, absolutely. It's, uh, it's your canvas. So thanks so much, Michelle. It's been uh, fantastic having you on. I really enjoyed the conversation. 
No, thank you. It's, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for the invitation. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for listening to this episode of Back of the Neck. To hear more stories of innovation and discovery just like this, subscribe to Back of the Napkin on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your friends, colleagues, or lab mates. Back of the Napkin is made possible by Biotechni, where science intersects innovation. Biotechni is a supplier of high quality and innovative tools for life science research, therapeutic manufacturing, clinical diagnostics, and more. They encompass brands like R&D Systems, Tokris Bioscience, Novus Biologicals, Protein Simple, Advanced Cell Diagnostics, Exosome Diagnostics, and a surgeon to name some. To learn more, you can visit the website at biotechni.com. That's bio-techni.com.